Welcome back to Tradmen. Uh, very excited for tonight's episode. Um, we have a very special guest with us to talk about kind of a, an obscure topic of, of theology that it's not something that I really grew up thinking a lot about, although uh, it, in, in reading um, his work on it and, and some other things, it does express a lot about the Catholic Church's view on the sacraments and that, that I think are important and very, very interesting. Um, our guest today is uh, Michael Lofton, who from over at uh, Reason and Theology. Uh, Michael is a graduate of Christendom College Graduate School of Theology, where he received his Master's of Arts in Theological Studies. And he is currently working on a doctorate in theology with Pontifex University and is writing a dissertation on the Magisterium of the Catholic Church. Michael is the founder of St. Maximus the Confessor Institute and the Reason and Theology Show, where he has interviewed many of the leading figures in contemporary theology. And he also has appeared on EWTN, Catholic Answers, Sirius XM Radio, Radio Maria, and has contributed frequently to various newspapers and websites. Michael, thank you so much for coming on our little podcast here. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me on, Mark and Jason. Um, you wrote a, now this is, it's a short book. Um, so it, it, you know, it, it's not something to really be intimidated by if you're not a professional theologian, which Jason and I are not. Um, and it talks about the limbo, the limbo of infants. Yeah. Um, which I had always thought growing up limbo was a, a kind of a, a euphemism for purgatory. Mm. And of course, shocker, I was wrong about that. Um, and we're going to, and we're, so we're going to explore this topic a little bit and really dig into, um, some very interesting discussions of not only the theology itself, but what it says about the magisterium of the church and, and the church's view on the sacraments. Um, before we do that, we should open with a with a quick prayer. And I know uh, our brother Michael here is from the Eastern Church, so we're gonna, we're gonna, we're going to pray in Latin. But um, that uh, but he is de we're definitely blessed to have uh, someone from from our Eastern rites join us. Um, and of course, always we invite you to join us along to uh, invoke the divine blessing so that we can have an edifying and fruitful discussion tonight. In nomine Patri et Filii et Spiritu Sancti. Amen. Vini sancti spiritus, repletora corda fidelium, et tuia moris in eis ignim accende. Imite spiritum tuum et creabuntur. Et renovabis facem tere. Oremus. Deus qui corda fidelium sancti spiritus, illustrazioni docuisti. Danobis seniorum spiritu recta sapere, et de eos semper consolazioni gardere, per Christum dominum nostrum. Amen. In omni patris et fili, et spiritus sancti. Amen. Well, uh, Mark, let me let me add something before we get started on on Michael's book here. You know, you made a you made a point about it being you know uh, not a very long book, but it's actually packed with quite a bit of information. Because as I started, I read I read this book first, and then I started kind of doing some outside research on it. And for the most part, the book covers everything in in very in a very concise way. And I also really enjoy how in the book he discusses magisterial documents and weights and what's fallible, what, what isn't infallible, because those are crucial in understanding, well, really anything within the Catholic Church, but particularly this subject, because there is a lot of uh, uh, leeway in which way you want to believe and what you don't want to believe, because the church hasn't defined the doctrine itself, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I really appreciate the the outline of the book, and it, it, is a, it is a good read, so I suggest anyone check it out. Now, as a Catholic podcaster, I was under the impression that I decided what was and was not authoritative teaching, and I was very shocked to determine that that 
actually held very little weight at all in that determination. So we can't excommunicate people, Mark. Um, <laughs> the introduction to your book was very powerful. Um, do you, would do you do you mind sharing a little bit about your that story with us? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, <clears throat> unfortunately, I've had a you know r- rough experience many many years ago, um, where one of my children was aborted against my will, and uh, it was it was a really tough time. I, I did not want that. I didn't consent to it. Did not agree to it. I fought against it, but there was really nothing I could do because sadly, you know, fathers don't really have a whole lot of rights when it comes to this issue. So, you know, in in the years that followed after that event, I did have to ask myself the question, I mean, what's the fate of my child? You know, are they in hell? Especially when I um, began to discern Catholicism, you know, and I hear about things like limbo. Um, I had to start asking questions. Okay, well, is my is my child in hell? Or are, are they in limbo? Are they in heaven? What exactly is limbo anyway? You know, I started I started to work through questions like that because of practical reasons, but also just because I, I wanted to know what does the church teach and what should I assent to? If the church requires me to maintain a particular position about unbaptized infants and their eternal fate, well, I'm going to assent to it. Even if it's my preference or not, I'm going to assent to what the magisterium proposes. Sure. So I had to start working through that. And, and so that's kind of what, you know, gave rise to the introduction. of the book. How many years of a process was this from those, the, that terrible event to the, you know, obviously your, your conversion story and then the, coming to this, to this work, how, how long, how long of a process was that? About 13 years. Wow. Um, long period of time. And, you know, frankly, for the majority of that time, I wasn't even able to really look into the issues involving it because it was just too emotional. I couldn't even think about it, let alone start, you know, um, getting into those kinds of questions. But uh, I will say that there was a whole lot of healing that came about whenever my daughter was born. Um, there's something about, you know, a life being taken and then a life being given that somewhat reversed some of that pain. Not all of it, but some of it. And it finally started to open me up to where I could consider questions, uh, you know, of theology that are related to this issue. But yeah, it was a, it was a long period of time. It wasn't really until the last few years that I was really even able to talk about it publicly. Just I, I felt that I wasn't able to. Um, not that I did anything wrong. Uh, I'm not saying that. That's not the reason. It was sure. more um, for emotional reasons. I just couldn't even talk about it. I was I was that distraught over the event. And I had been through a whole lot of things even by that time. But for me, I was so happy that there was going to be a life that was part of me. I was so happy that this was my first child. Um, and when that child was murdered, I felt that some, you know, part of me was really taken away. It was a very hurtful thing. But I, again, I share that story in the book because I want people to understand that I can relate. and I can understand what's involved when it comes uh, to this discussion emotionally. 
There are people who have had abortions. There are people who have had miscarriages. And there's a lot of pain, a lot of emotions involved. And I get that. But at the end of the day, I still want to say, I recognize that, but we need to put those emotions to the side and ask, what does the church teach? Now, sneak peek, I think that the church um, has enough leeway here to allow for some good news, but we, we can get to that whenever, whenever y'all want. So digging in here and, and, you know, I thought, well, this is going to be a, a, it's, it looks like it's about a hundred pages, maybe a little bit more. So this is going to be maybe a short little pamphlet on theology. It's more than that, really. This is a, this is a book that is, it appears to me to be with the intention of reaching people who are going through that same pain and don't, mm -hmm. don't know where to go. It's, it's kind of an obscure theological topic. And we also live in a largely secularized and to the extent it is Christianized Protestant mm -hmm. milieu that will look at something like this and go, Oh, who cares? Oh, come on. Yeah. So, so they didn't go through the ceremony, you know, mm -hmm. is, why is it, why is why is this? Let me think of how I want to phrase this here. When we talk about, um, when we have discussions amongst Protestants and Catholics in particular, we're using a lot of the same words. We're using words like sacraments, mm -hmm. bishop, church, Eucharist, but we mean very different things by these words. So when we talk about why what happens to unbaptized infants, why is that a big question? Bigger than maybe we might think it is in the world. Yeah, and, and you're right to kind of note that one of the reasons why perhaps some Protestants kind of wonder, well, hey, what's, what's the big deal? Why is this even an issue? Is because we do have some differences there in our understanding of sacraments, especially baptism. From the Catholic perspective, there are two things that we're trying to account for in Scripture that we would say there, there's some tension between them. I don't believe there's a contradiction. I don't believe there's a contradiction in Scripture. I believe God is the author of everything proposed by the human authors in Scripture. So there's nothing that it proposes that would be in there. So any kind of tensions that we come across, is it's just that. It's no more. There's, there's not actual contradiction. That being said, there are still tensions, though. There are still things sure. that we try to understand. Okay, well... How do I reconcile these things? I believe by faith that they could be reconciled, but they seem very hard to reconcile. And the two things that we're talking about here involves, number one, God's universal will uh, of salvation for everyone. I mean, it will, along with that, we could then start to talk about God's, um, God's consequent will and predestination and things like that, but we're going we're to table that for the moment and, and say, yes, we recognize there are plenty of passages that speak about God does not desire the death of the wicked and that he wishes for all to be saved. We, we see that in Scripture. Then we see, on the other hand, another tension, and, or part that brings in tension, I should say. And that is the necessity of baptism for salvation. We see this in Jesus himself. He talks about the necessity of being born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
And being born again in John 3, in the context, it's clear that this is in reference to baptism. It talks about being born of the water and spirit. And immediately after this conversation that he has with Nicodemus, it shifts to, you know, a baptism scene. So um, the context is clearly baptism. Um, and of course, this is the universal reception of, of that, that text. That is going to be one of the differences, however, between us and Protestants, some Protestants, uh, because they're generally going to over-spiritualize that passage and, and divorce it from uh, water baptism. And so for them, the difficulty isn't really there because they think, well, what Jesus is talking about is, is this internal baptism uh, that comes about from belief and it has nothing to do with water. So this conversation, you know, is is about water and the necessity of water baptism is is something that you Catholics believe, but it's not something that we maintain. So you're right. They, they're kind of confused as to, you know, why, why do we believe this stuff? Well, again, I, I think a strong case can be made that John 3 is about the necessity of baptism. And we could also point to other texts that speak about how the beginning of salvation, the initial component or initial aspect of it is uh, through water baptism. The Holy Spirit being granted to us in the baptismal waters. Well, you now have, again, two things that are in tension. God wants everyone to be saved, but then he restricts salvation, seemingly, to those who are baptized with water. Well, there's plenty of people who have never heard of the gospel, let alone have they been baptized with water. Plenty of infants as well. Um, does that mean that they don't have eternal life? Does that mean that they're in hell? Does that mean that they're in the same place that Nero Caesar and Hitler is in? Um, or are they in the place where Mother Teresa is? Or are they in some kind of third place? It starts to rate. We start to have a lot of questions at this point when we try to reconcile these two um, aspects to Scripture. So that's kind of what gives rise to this. I, I don't know if that helps answer. No, definitely. Yeah, and and Mar or, uh, Michael, I was gonna, you know, going along with what you said there. You know, I I know from my Protestant background, um, baptism was taught to be a necessity. It was required for salvation. So I was, I guess, I was one of the few Protestant groups that, Is that the, Christ Church or Church of Christ. Church of Christ. Yeah, yeah. The, so you know, we were. Growing up, we were real big on the the, the necessity of baptism, yeah. but but where limbo would come to um, butt heads in a way with with that mindset, you know that like you're saying it's it's necessary, but you know how can you condemn or teach that a baby is an innocent child is condemned to hell, right, for all eternity? I also think you know Mark was saying our our words mean different things. I think that a lot of people have a misunderstanding of what hell is, at least traditionally, what hell is meant to be. Because, you know, in our creed, we talk about Christ ascending in, or, or descending into hell. And he, mm -hmm. you know, brought up the patriarchs, you know, out of what, I guess, what's called the limbo of the patriarchs. Mm -hmm. um, how much of a factor do you think the, the different idea and understanding of what hell is plays into that? And where does limbo fit into this idea that, uh, they don't, they don't, if they're not in the beatific vision in heaven with God, then they're in hell. Um, how does that factor in there? Um, 
right as, as far as the understanding of the word yeah you're and, and you're right on target to know that that's kind of where the debate is partly um our our concept and understanding of the afterlife especially hell what do we mean by hell so it seems that at the time of the new testament that there are different components or maybe compartments loosely speaking i mean we're, we're talking about things that are a little abstract but you know we can maybe speak of compartments to hell by way of an analogy different sections to it if you will um of course hell could just generally speaking in some contexts refer to uh the grave but oftentimes it could refer to the hell of the damned where the impious go for eternity um we could even speak about um tartarus where which is a part of hell where the fallen angels are those who rebelled against god during the time of noah's flood um we can speak of also what we see in Luke 16, where it, it, before Christ's ascension, he speaks about the righteous, like the Old Testament patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the righteous would go to a particular part of hell. But it was a place distinct from the hell of the damned, those who were impious. So we can see even in, in the words of Jesus, there's a distinction there between um, where the righteous went in hell and where the unrighteous went. Um, and I'll, in, in a moment, it will make sense how this relates to limbo of infants. But um, we, can, we can then say, okay, well, after the ascension, it does appear that those who were in the limbo of the fathers or where the righteous went prior to the ascension, it seems that those have been brought to heaven, if you will. There are certain passages that talk about, uh, you know, the harrowing of hell and where Jesus also preaches the good news to those who are in hell. And then it, there are passages that speak about him bringing captives on high with him um, to, uh, to heaven. And, and we understand that as the limbo of the fathers, also known as Abraham's bosom, again, where the righteous went when they died prior to the ascension. We understand it as those people were brought to heaven, whereas there are still those unrighteous people in hell, and they will re actually remain there until the second coming. And on the day of judgment, um, the book of Revelation notes that hell will be cast into the lake of, lake of fire, so those unrighteous individuals will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Okay, so there's different ways in which we can speak about hell, um, different compartments to it. Um, now, as to your question, though, we're, how does limbo factor into this? Um, limbo is also considered a part of hell but it's considered the fringe or border of hell. In fact, that's what the term limbo means, fringe, border. Why is it the fringe or border? Well, it's, and we, we can go further into detail on what limbo really is, but it's this idea, generally speaking, that those who have not done anything unrighteous themselves, 
such as an unbaptized infant, they haven't committed any sins. Yet, their original sin has not been remitted through baptism. The idea is that they would be on the border of hell. Because they're not going to be in the place of hell where Hitler is. Right. Because they didn't yeah. do anything evil. Right. Yeah. Right. So why would, why would they be in that part of hell? Um, but they would not be admitted into what you noted there as the beatific vision, what we call heaven, because that their original sin was not remitted. Um, which is ordinarily through water baptism. So there's a whole lot more that we could say there about limbo and its nature and the rationale behind it. But that's kind of where limbo factors in in relation to hell. So, and and you you just touched on what I think is the the stumbling block for people who would look at something like this and a, a very famous recent news story about baptisms mm -hmm. in the state of Arizona. Okay, mm -hmm. you know. When we talk about original sin, okay, what 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 I very recently learned in my sort of layperson's study of of Old Testament and first century Judaism is that though the Pharisees who did believe that there was an afterlife um, did not believe that heaven was for heavenly beings, right? Heaven is for God and the angels. The idea that good people would go to heaven when you die. I mean, is uh, I, that's a stretch. And here comes this Nazarene carpenter who says, no, no, the kingdom of God is at hand. And if you, uh, if, if when we expiate sin, when you, at the end of time, I'm going to raise you on the last day and you're going to come be with me, not in, uh, the 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 a, a better version of Earth, but literally in God's courtroom with with Him, looking at Him personally. This was a very controversial thing to say to the Jews because the, the Jews uh, rightly at that time would have said, "Okay, what about sin? Sinners don't go to heaven." Mm -hmm. And then we're looking at these unbaptized infants who haven't committed any sins. Not mm -hmm. so fast. Um, we go back to the, the, one of the central tenets of the Catholic religion is that we're all born with a problem. Mm. And, um, this, this problem is not, um, just an antiquated way of explaining some bad parts about human nature. It's real. Mm -hmm. And baptism for the Catholics, and this is why this is where I think the big stumbling block is. And it's not that Protestants don't require it, because there are plenty of Protestant denominations who do. It's about what they think baptism actually does. Mm -hmm. Baptism is not a sort of ritualized initiation ceremony where you can now say, I've, I've gone through the ritual, so now I can be called a son of God. It actually cleanses the original sin. It takes that away. And be and and other than that, right? And correct me if I'm wrong. Original sin is not something you can just get rid of in the sacrament of confession, for say, right? Mm -hmm. You would you would need to go to baptism because you inherited a problem, and um, you know, and and even just going through baptism, you still have concupiscence, which is left over afterwards, which is a lifetime process. Believe me, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I think when we talk about 
limbo. It seems like, well, you guys are going to an awful uh, a lot of mental gymnastics to, to not put babies in heaven. What is the problem? The problem is original sin. And it's not mm. mental gymnastics. It's a real problem. And I think mm. that, um, that that's important. One of the things I liked about your book was you, the different levels of magisterium that you talked about. Yeah. I did not know that there were that many. You know, We live in, in, in an information age in which everybody thinks they know everything, and very few of us know what the heck we're talking about. So we're always b- declaring what the magisterium teaches and what it doesn't. Um, it's not quite so clear cut as that, is it? Mm, it, it most certainly is not. Um, although the fortunate thing is, I mean, the magisterium is not so uh, aloof that it's it's impossible to understand it or that you have to be some distinguished theologian to understand it. There's some basic principles that one could learn pretty easily uh, to discern, you know, between the major forms in which the magisterium can exercise church authority. But yeah, um, and, and that's why I address that, is, is because a lot of the texts that are involved historically um, that one needs to consider when it comes to the issue of limbo revolve around an understanding of the, how to interpret magisterial propositions. If, if you don't know how to at least just some basics on how to interpret magisterial propositions, you might think or you might come to certain conclusions about the eternal fate of an unbaptized infant that is actually out of step with the magisterium. So that's kind of why we, you know, I talk about that because I, I see it as incredibly important uh, to the conversation. Because you, it's, it would be very easy for a, a layman like myself who is not, um, you know, an, an expert in any sense to, to start from the beginning proposition, baptism is necessary for salvation. Mm-hmm. A, B, you were not baptized equals C, mm-hmm. you went to hell, period. And we're done. Right. But- yeah, uh, you know, and 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 that's again, the, there's 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 levels of magisterial teaching, and if when when you mm-hmm. go around saying things like that, you could mm-hmm. uh, there could be a potential convert who's close to coming in who now hears that and goes, well, I don't I don't want anything to do with that, you know, yeah. no thank you, and now through no through no fault of your own other than arrogance or you know uh, whatever, you've now become a, a an interruption in that person's conversion process, so I, that. That's why I, I loved that treatment of that. And I liked the fact that it was complicated and that it was very nuanced because one of the things I think mm-hmm. is missing in uh, modern lay people, Catholics who are on the internet, and I love them. I'm one of them, right? And I think it's great that we mm-hmm. have all these people who are excited about the faith, want to share it, want to get involved, mm-hmm. is that you know, know what you're talking about. When you talk about the magisterium, it is very, it can be very uh, nuanced and very complicated. So if you don't know that, which I know, which I don't, you probably should not go around condemning popes, excommunicating everybody who you don't like, uh, deciding that because the the priest didn't unveil the chalice the right way, he's definitely going Mm -hmm. to hell, you know? Um, to be authentically traditionally Catholic is to adhere yeah. to the traditions of the magisterium, which are nuanced. And, mm. you know, uh, so I, I loved that you did that. And I liked that it was a little complicated and that you could, that you could get to the end of that section and go, 
oh man, this this magisterium stuff. Yeah, it, don't wade into waters that you don't know how to swim in. Sometimes you know before mm. you you go. Well, yeah, and, and and part of the treatment in your book that you yeah, about the magisterium is you put it in very simplistic layman terms for people like myself. But at the same time, after reading that, I'm I realize. Man, I'm, I can get way in over my head with when it comes to magister, you know, magisterial authority. So, yeah, it is a very nuanced and complicated subject, which, which uh, I totally agree with. And, and that's, you know, part of, part of the reason why I go over it is because there's a lot of people today that are dogmatic about the idea that limbo is something that must necessarily be maintained as the fate of every unbaptized infant and that the church today is out of step with definitive teachings of prior magisterium. And therefore we need to, you know, condemn the modernist church today and right. go with what the church of the ages has always taught. And right. it's that kind of mentality that I, I encounter so often. And it's, it's mistaken. It's severely mistaken for multiple reasons. Number one, uh, being the doctrine of uh, limbo is not actually something that um, is necessarily proposed definitively, although we could get into some of the intricacies involved there. But everything that is taught today about the fate of unbaptized infants is not contradictory to what has been proposed previously um, by the magisterium, they're actually compatible. It's actually possible to maintain everything the church has ever said on this topic and what is, it currently says today. It's possible to integrate those things, but we have to understand how the magisterium works um, and then look at the propositions that the magisterium has put forth very carefully, Indeed. which is what I try to do. And I'm, you know, I'm more than happy to elaborate on that. Well, especially in topics like this that are that are very sensitive. I mean, if, it's not that we're opposed to telling the truth, and we, and we and you should tell the truth. If the magisterium defines something and it's a hard saying and it's going to upset people, you have mm -hmm. to you have to stand up for the truth, and that's true. But right. at the same time, uh, in in areas where you know people are going through grief or um, you know just very uh, like you, like you talked about earlier, this is an emotionally charged subject that. People who are connected to it are very deeply emotionally connected to this. This is not just like, mm -hmm. you know, just some sort of random odd theological topic for those who mm -hmm. uh, are, are asking these questions. So you got to be very sensitive. Um, and, and sometimes if things are beyond your level of expertise, we, we like in this instance, we wanted to have somebody on who uh, could speak about this, you know, obviously not authoritatively in the sense like you're the decider, but yeah. you've definitely right. done a lot more research on this topic than the two of us. And we felt like somebody who might be listening to this episode who has had this happen, the last thing in the world I, they would want to do is get something from me that is incorrect that caused them uh, some sort of scandal or anything like that. So, you know, in, in talking here about this issue being emotionally charged and, and um, I, I would note here that even if someone, if an infant actually does go to limbo and we could discuss whether or not anyone actually does and, and stuff like that, but um, even if an infant were to go to limbo, 
um, though it sounds at first repulsive because number one, you're saying, wait, they're on the border of hell. Mm-hmm. That's number one. That already sounds bad. And then they're not with God in heaven for eternity. That, that sounds even worse. Um, uh, it's, it's not actually as bad as it sounds though. Explain you a know, little bit of that. Get, get spend, that. Spending eternity in limbo is actually not a bad lot. Um, Limbo is actually, though we speak about it as the border of hell, it's a place of perfect natural happiness. So imagine life with perfect natural happiness, perfect natural knowledge of God, and even natural communion with God. That's what limbo is. Okay. That's not that bad. I mean... <laughs> better than, yeah. It's better than anything that already is, this a, is, a, is a more well, clarifying understanding than what I think I had yeah. at the beginning of the conversation. So that's excellent. Thank you for that. And and you kind of touched on the the question I was going to ask you, Mike. You know, I I was listening to one of your uh, podcast episodes before, and you you were kind of I don't want to get into the details, but you were calling out the the misquoting or reading into of the Council of Florence by a, yeah. by another mm-hmm. personality, right? So I went in and I and I read what the Council of Florence said. I mean, you you bring it up in your book as well, and you also bring up the Second Council. Is it of Lions, Loins? How do you say it? Lyons in France, Lyons. Yeah. So you know, the Second Council of Lyons. It says the souls of those who die in mortal sin or with original sin only, however, immediately descend to hell, yet to be punished with different punishments. And the Council of Florence says pretty much. Something very similar, right? So, what you just described there is how limbo the they will be in a state of perfect natural happiness, right? So, if you were to somebody were to come to you because you know it's going to be a question that to, that I know you're asked when you bring that up. Okay, well you say that, but these church documents from your church, from the Catholic Church, says they will be punished with unequal unequal pains. How would you describe the unequal pains? Because, you know, again, it's back to the definition of a, of a word. When we think of pain, many times we think of discomfort, maybe mm-hmm. torment or whatever. It's not a good thing, right, uh, in most right. people's minds. So how, with the natural happiness and with what these two councils have said, uh, what would be your, your, uh, how, your answer to that question? So the key words there is is when you quoted the part of the text where it notes um, different punishments and different different pains. And of course, we want to distinguish between the pain of the senses that the damned and tormented will experience and the pain of the loss of heaven that an unbaptized infant who is in limbo or would be in limbo um, would experience. So we can speak of those two different kinds of pains um one again is a pain of the senses one is a loss of heaven um and and so and and again it does know that both of them go to hell but as a reminder limbo is a border of hell so that everything i've said is you know compatible with that um uh, moreover i'll note that it was innocent the third who put into canon law prior to both of those magisterial statements um, the position that um, those who would die with 
original sin on their conscience without any kind of actual sins. So we would be talking about an infant who does not have their original sin remitted. Um, a person in that state would only experience the loss of heaven and would not experience any of the pain of the senses. So the proper understanding of what you see there, especially at Florence, um, was already given to us by Innocent III, who excluded the position that these infants would receive any kind of pain of the senses. So it's important that we're aware of those things historically, and more importantly, that we pay careful attention to the words used in the text that we're reading. And most people don't do that. They jump to conclusions. They don't make the necessary distinctions, and they then come up with really bad um, conclusions. Right. And and even centering around all of this, I mean, even when we talk about the hell of the damned and you know, we were, we were talking about Adolf Hitler earlier and things like that. Mm. I mean, I'll be honest, if I am lucky enough to make it to the beatific vision, I will be very surprised to see Adolf there if he's there. But mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even in the cases of people like that, those decisions, who goes to hell, who goes to heaven, who, even amongst the baptized, is reserved solely to our Lord. You and I do not have the authority to decide who goes to heaven, who goes to hell, who goes to limbo, who goes to purgatory, and for how long, based on some mathematical chart we can draw up on, on from the magisterium or the, or the scriptures or anything like that. These are decisions. So that's why even when people die in states of grave sin, it is always our duty to commend their souls to the mercy of God and, mm -hmm. and, and, and leave it alone at that point, because now it's outside of your jurisdiction. So, you know, when you say things like, um, is, is so-and-so in hell? You know, we, we don't know. We've all, we, we always commend to the mercy of God because we do not want anyone to go there. Um, you know, there's, there's often that, that thing about some people teach that no one's going to go to hell and people get really upset about that. And I think, Hey, if you died and you, you found out no one went to hell, would you be upset? And why would you be upset? Mm. Don't worry about it. That you're, you're, you're. You're trying to make decisions that are way above your pay grade here. Just, you know, stay in your lane a little bit. <laughs> and a lot of those people are trying to make sense of the necessity of baptism. And they sure. want to say, but this person wasn't baptized, but this person isn't a Catholic. And outside of the Catholic Church, there is no salvation. And so they think that, well, this person wasn't baptized a Catholic. Boom. There you go. They're in hell. Um, so... They're trying to grapple with that in many cases, and the problem is oftentimes they don't have enough um, awareness of uh, certain theological aspects that are involved in these discussions, which I'm more than happy to talk about because they, the question of the necessity of water baptism is crucial to um, the question of whether any infant ever goes to limbo. I mean, because it's not a revealed dogma, obviously, and you, you talk about that in the book. This is not, the, the idea of limbo is not something we receive from our Lord or uh, either from his, his earthly ministry or from the, the Holy Ghost's uh, uh, Pentecost revelations. This right. is sort of a natural consequence of, of what was revealed about the sacrament of mm -hmm. baptism. Mm -hmm. um, 
And one of the things that I always like to tell people to never forget, or at least I like to think about this myself, is the Catholic Church is the fullness of God's revelation about himself. It is not the fullness of God. You are not, being a Catholic does not mean you can read God's mind and you now understand the totality of, of God's existence. Sometimes we're talking about spiritual realities that we will not even be able to fully understand until we are on the last day. I mean, we can talk about the beatific vision and we can talk mm-hmm. about what that's going to be like, but everything, any words we're going to use are going to be substantially deficient in talking about the reality. And sometimes you just have to say, you know, there's no way to really talk about what that's going to be like. You just have to yeah. sort of, you have to submit to the will of our Lord and, and, and go on, you know? Yeah. You, even dogmas, um, though they're true in their propositions, they don't fully exhaust the mystery of what they're expressing. Um, so for example, that Jesus is consubstantial with the father, that's true propositionally. I mean, it, it's, it's true, but does that fully exhaust the mystery of, of him being consubstantial? No. Um, there's, there's definitely some aspects to that, that we haven't exhausted and never will. Um, but yeah, you're right to note there that the concept of limbo is a necessary theological conclusion given certain circumstances. Question is, are those circumstances necessary? Um, yes, if an infant dies without having their original sin remitted, they would go to this place of perfect natural happiness natural union with God, even natural union with the, with the saints in heaven. They, they don't have supernatural communion with them, but it natural union with uh, their family there. And so they would go to this place if they die in a state of original sin. That's the necessary conclusion, and that's what Florence is expressing, and that is true. The question is, do all infants actually die in a state of original sin well we could say but every infant does contract original sin they're conceived but it doesn't immediately sin. follow that they die that way Very we, good we could then ask but is it possible that their original sin is remitted it's removed by god prior to their death in an extra sacramental way we know that original sin is remitted ordinarily through water baptism however there are exceptional circumstances to that that are clear in our, our faith tradition, and that is going to be people who are catechumens, who have not reached the baptismal font but die. They, their original sin and actual sins are forgiven. We consider them baptized. Really? Baptism I didn't know that. Desires, what it's called, which, which is actually... Uh, put forward by the Council yeah. of Trent. I, I had heard um, of baptism by desire, but see, again, a lot of times I think I know what I'm talking about when I use these words. In fact, I, I just learned recently, uh, based on this story that came out of Arizona about the the we baptize and and how that was mm-hmm. not 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 sufficient to to affect the sacrament. And when I first mm-hmm. heard the story, I said, I said, honey, that's okay. I was talking to my wife. I said, Ecclesia suplet, we're good. They're they're okay. She comes to me about later that night. She says. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. I said, no, of course it means that. I've known what Ecclesia Suplet means for 30 years. I grew up a Catholic. Um, she was right. I was, I'd been using that phrase wrong for 30 years. 
um, and, and not understanding of what it meant. I, my understanding was, is that if one of the three elements necessary to affect the sacrament is missing by not out of, uh, neglect, but out of, you know, a fault that doesn't, that is unredressable or an accident of, uh, faulty information or extreme necessity, then the church will mm-hmm. supply the grace to affect the sacrament. Very mm-hmm. incorrect theological understanding of Ecclesia Suplet, and I'm glad I don't have mm-hmm. that misunderstanding anymore. Um, yeah, and another and example fact, of don't wade into waters where you don't know what you're talking about. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, Canonist Ed Peters pointed that out, and that's true, and I concede that. However, I think what's overlooked is that though it's true, the church supplies doesn't actually apply here. Um, the concept of the Holy Spirit supplying may, right. because there is something in our liturgical tradition in the East, in the Byzantine liturgy, that talks about grace filling up by the power of the Holy Spirit what is lacking. And it's in the context of, of ordination, um, of a bishop especially. Um, so what it's talking about is if there's some kind of defect in the ordination of this bishop, the Holy Spirit, we pray he will fix whatever defect there is in this ordination. Okay. Um, so I, I do think that, yeah, you that's true, but I don't want to take away from the fact that, however, the Holy Spirit may supply what is lacking. Um and and that's relevant to what we're saying here when it comes to this issue of limbo, because we may not have uh, the ability to give water baptism to some infants, obviously, um, when it's aborted, for example. Okay, well, we clearly don't, we're not able to baptize them with water. Um, but is it possible that the Holy Spirit could give them the graces of baptism apart from the sacrament? It's most certainly possible. He does that with catechumens. He does that with those who are martyred, who have never been baptized, but they are baptized with their blood. Uh, They're martyred for the name of Christ. We recognize that in our tradition. Um, So it's possible that God could remit this infant's original sin and supply what is lacking, give them the grace of baptism so that we can speak about them being baptized, however, apart from water, it's not the ordinary means, but God is not bound to the sacraments. We are, but he is not. Um, so it's possible. But do I know that he has done that? Do I know that he has actually remitted somebody's original sin extra sacramentally? And I could say, my infant, yep, they went through that one. The Holy Spirit came down, did this. That. I don't know that. Right? Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Maybe my child is in limbo. Maybe my child is enjoying God in heaven by having been given the grace of baptism extra sacramentally. I don't know. It could be that some are in limbo and some are in heaven. It could be that all are in limbo and none are in heaven. It could be that none are in limbo and all are in heaven because we don't know whether the Holy Spirit has extra sacramentally um, remitted a person's original sin and given them the graces of um, the beatific beatific vision. Um, but here's the key, though. I mean, what the magisterium says today is that we can have hope. We can have hope that he has given that. And that's true. We can have hope. We cannot have certitude. He may, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But we can have hope that he 
could do that and may have done that. And that's not at odds with what Florence and pre-conciliar um, teachings were saying. Because they're talking about the cases of people who die with original sin. The magisterium today is talking about a very different situation. We're talking about those who could possibly have had their original sin remitted extra sacramentally. Those are two very different things. Indeed, Those are not contradictory. But a lot of people think, well, what's being said today is contradictory with these previous teachings. No. You just need to make some proper distinctions and realize we're talking about two very different situations. Well, let me ask you a question about the East, about the, the Eastern spirituality. Um, and I know you said you converted from Protestantism, correct? Did you spend any time in, in the Orthodox Church at all? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I have a really... Because uh, that's uh, one it, situation it, it, where... that See, they're not like the Protestants. When we use... Mm-hmm. When we talk about things like church, sacrament... Bishop, mm-hmm. Eucharist, we are talking about the same things with those guys. So um, I, 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 but I also noticed that at least it seems to me in the Orthodox tradition, the idea of using a lot of philosophy to solve unknowable theological um, debates, there's almost sort of a, why would you worry about that? It, it, that has not been revealed to us. So mm-hmm. it ain't any of your business. Take up your cross and let's. Yeah. Let's, let's go forward. Mm-hmm. Is that is that a yeah. fair assessment of of the the mentality in the East? Of some in the East, okay. Um, not of the Eastern Christians traditionally and historically, but of some in the last few hundred years. And yeah, I spent some some years in Eastern Orthodoxy, three years in Eastern Orthodoxy. I had a detour from there. I actually went to Catholicism first, to, had a detour in Orthodoxy, and returned to Union with Rome. Praise God. Um, and it's it's a pretty pretty long story, which I'd be happy to share in any time. Um, but that's that's the gist of it. But yeah, as as far as Eastern mentality, some take that position, but that's not that hasn't been the Eastern tradition on the whole. The Eastern tradition on the whole has been fine with going into distinctions and developing theology. In fact, it was the East that was considered top-notch in theology and it was the west that was kind of considered backwoods you know uneducated for a long time and so um there's various reasons why some in the orthodox churches today kind of take that um approach that is anti-intellectual but i don't think it's really reflective of the eastern tradition historically as a whole I, i don't think it's a necessary position that an eastern christian adopts um, by any means. Is there any evidence that the Orthodox churches are thinking about this problem at all or have any significant contributions to it? Mm, as far as the issue of limbo, no. Um, so <clears throat> what's interesting is here there really hasn't been any developments since um, the first millennium, even going back all the way to figures like uh, Gregory of Nyssa. Um, so the patristic age, the East took a, an approach that really the West took up until the time of Augustine, which was the conclusion that we don't know where unbaptized infants go. They don't go to the same place where the unrighteous go, but they also don't go to the place where the righteous go. They kind of just go to this middle place and they wouldn't 
really expand. There's limits to what we can know about that. So there's limits to what we can talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. They just kind of leave it at that. And and you have a few theologians who try to speculate, but um, they wouldn't go very far with it. The Eastern tradition never really developed that any further. Um, And I think that there's multiple reasons for it. Um, Possibly could be that it hasn't been as much of a pressing need because there haven't been um, as many developments there when it comes to a recognition of original sin as much as there has been in the West. Obviously, Augustine, where some of this stuff did develop, um, was also you know, a lot more aware of the concept of original sin than some of his Eastern counterparts. And that factored into the development between East and West here. Another factor I think is the the Eastern church doesn't really have an ability to arbitrate between theological disputes, at least definitively speaking. So they're not able to really offer a a definitive answer in, in, in this area. Although if I recall correctly, I do think that there is a reference in the Council of Jerusalem, 1672, I want to say that there is a reference to infants going to hell. And if I recall correctly, even the place of like w- where they would experience some some pain. Oh, so but they, I could they went, they went hardcore in these. I'll, I'll have to go back and look at that. Yeah. But that's the Council of Jerusalem. So Interesting. Double check me on that one. I, I, I probably, uh, I'm going to take your word for it because I think if I dug <laughs> into that, I wouldn't know what I was looking at to begin with. Um, um, well, I, I did want to ask you, kind of backing up, um, back to the Western church here out of uh, the, the Eastern Eastern side. I, I was just, I guess it, as a both so anyway you know how we we teach that there are many marian doctrines and even dogmas that we believe um and they help defend the def- divinity of christ right they uh, of who jesus is and who jesus was right do you think limbo without dogmatically holding that limbo is 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 real and stuff do you think limbo can also be used against the errors of that baptism is not necessary, which you were talking about earlier, where it's just an internal thing. Do you think limbo can be used to defend the necessity of baptism while also holding these views that God can omit their original sin in some extraordinary means? Yeah, I, I, I do, although there's a lot of easier ways to, to get at that one. I agree. Yeah. The necessity of baptism, we can point to explicitly in scripture. Um, Whereas the concept of limbo would be a longer, you know, more convoluted um, theological conclusion. And and so it'd be a lot easier to just substantiate the necessity of baptism in John 3 or something like that. Right. (laughs) It would be a roundabout way to do it, but yeah, yeah, it it would work, I think. Well, I, I guess I was just trying to wrap my mind around the people that do try to teach this as a dogmatic teaching that you must assent to. Um, you know, if, if you're gonna, if, you know, if you're gonna hold that, how would you, um, you know, could, could you come to someone and say, well, you don't have to dogmatically hold it, but you can still believe it and it be of use in evangelizing, basically? So I'm trying to get to. Um, but I, I, I tend to agree with you. There, there are several scriptures alone that, that defend that much more concise and much easier. But I think what it does for me, though, what it, what it 
it highlighted again what it is that the church teaches baptism does. It's 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 not just about the necessity of it, but when we talk about um, uh, cleansing of original sin, we're not speaking in some sort of um, you know metaphorical or symbolic or ceremonial sense. We're, we're talking about the fact that this is a an an institution that that actually does the thing that it claims to do uh, in in every sense that is real. So the lack of that leaves us with no small problem here. Um, because as much as we might like to think that in the modern age we understand the problem of evil is largely a site, you know, a series of psychological issues that can all be treated with medicine and things like that. Well, that is largely not proven to be true, um, and so we have to understand that the, the the evil that we're born into, and that it's it's not um, it's not just an outdated way of thinking about things. It's a real problem, and it's a condition that we we're all born into, obviously, and and then we'll spend the rest of our lives dealing with the consequences of it, even after baptism. So, I, when in reading that, I was looking at this going. This really illustrates the church's teaching about baptism and what it does, and, and, and not just that it's necessary, but why it's necessary. Um, and it's, it's not just we're very overly legalistic, uh, you know, we're, we're modern-day Pharisees, the scripture says to do it, and so you must do it, and that's the end. Of, you know, it's not like that. This is, there's, there's consequences to not doing that, and they're quite severe, I think. Um, yeah, and, and they involve the concept of, of original sin, and oftentimes we don't really have an understanding of what it is, which, I mean, we, we could talk about original sin at length, but in summary, it's going to be, number one, a loss of what we would call sanctifying grace, and that is, you can think of it as as unity with God. Think of it like that, a supernatural unity with God. It's a loss of that. It's what original sin is. Um, whenever we're born, we're born into a state where we do not have a supernatural union with God that we had originally in the garden. So we're born already supernaturally separated uh, from God. And of course, you mentioned um, concupiscence earlier. So there's other effects that um, it has on us as well. There's this idea that we're kind of curved inward. You know, we, we you don't have to... I noticed I didn't have to teach any of my children to lie. They all discovered how to lie on their own. Right. They all discovered how to disobey their parents on their own. Right. And right. we did as well whenever we were uh, really small. And that's because we're curved inward and we're, we're born that way. And so there's this uh, disposition of being curved inward. There's this, um, uh, there, there's this, subjection to death mortality and especially there's this loss of sanctifying grace so since god doesn't owe <clears throat> uh heaven to anybody he's not obligated to remit everyone's original sin he's not obligated to do that and say i'm going to remit that original sin boom i'm going to give you the grace that's necessary to go to heaven because Heaven is not something you could naturally attain. You do need to have grace for that. It's a gift. Um, but he's not obligated to give a gift to anybody. So because of that, it puts us in this predicament of, okay, well, God's not obligated to give any of these infants heaven. It's also not fitting that he would punish them with the same punishment that Hitler would receive 
you know, if he's spending eternity. Right. So what exactly happens with him? Well, that's where this subject comes up. Could be that they're in limbo. Could be that he has remitted their original sin in an extra sacramental way. Um, and given them the graces that are necessary in order to enter into heaven, could be we can have a hope. And this, and spoiler so, alert for those of you who read this, this will bounce all over the place as the as the through that throughout the years. Great saintly men, saintly popes will advocate both positions here. So it's not as mm -hmm. it's it, and and so what the, the question I wanted to ask you is is at the end of it, you 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 come to a place where obviously we can trust and hope in um, in the mercy of God. Did that did that bring peace to you in your situation? Did you find something personally, spiritually beneficial about that that um, that that brought you to a different place? Do you think it brought additional peace? Although I had already come to peace with it prior to my theological conclusions. Um, partly because of, again, when my daughter was born, it helped bring a lot of healing. Um, so I kind of, you know, already was was able to come to some um, peace to an extent. But yeah, much more with the conclusion that we can have hope. Mm -hmm. um, also, there it's actually relieving to know that, okay, well, if my infant is in limbo, limbo is not a bad, bad place. So there's, there's hope there too. Sure. There's a different kind of hope because, okay, well, if by God's grace, I spend eternity with God in the beatific vision, there will be a different communion that I would have uh, than my infant who doesn't have a supernatural communion with God, but only a natural knowledge of God. Okay. So there is a difference there, but, um, on the whole, though, I mean, an eternity of natural happiness and natural union with God and natural fellowship with the I'll people that you love, it's really <laughs> not that bad. So that even the worst case scenario is kind of comforting to me. Best case scenario is we, we would be in heaven together. Well, I, I wanted to ask you, how did we come to this conclusion or understanding that that limbo is just pure natural happiness devoid of the supernatural beatific vision um i i guess reading th through your book here and other things that i read i still haven't seen how how we came to that to that conclusion right 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 it's especially because of the theological work of thomas aquinas okay um he did a lot of the footwork there in his perspective was well received after aquinas so not only do you have Aquinas, a great theologian, testifying to it, you more importantly have um, this implicit acceptance of the, the church of what he's saying about those who, what they would experience if they're in limbo. There's kind of this implicit uh, acceptance of that. Um, again, you, you might push back and say, but... It's never been dogmatized. So um, I don't necessarily believe this, if somebody's in limbo and experiences this perfect natural happiness. Okay, well, you, you can have your own personal speculations. There's nothing demanding your assent right. there. But I would say if, if, if Aquinas uh, puts this forward, yes, he could, he could be wrong. Uh, individual theologians could be wrong. But the reception of what he put forward was so strong 
that carries a lot of moral weight. Maybe not magisterial weight, but there's a whole lot of moral weight that is behind that. So that I would be very hesitant to to go against what numerous theologians and individuals who have thought about this, who have gone before me, have concluded. So would you would you say that speaks to the census fidelium um, aspect of it? It most certainly touches on it because the sense of the faithful, one of the ways in which we can identify it, because there's different ways that we can, but one of the ways that we can identify it is in uh, the expression of theologians. I mean, oftentimes when we speak of the sense of the faithful, we can we can speak about um, the church as, as a whole universally, but then... Ha- how do you do that? Do you poll like every every single Catholic? I mean, how how do you identify that? Right, right. it's it's a little hard to identify the sense of the faithful unless you sit there and take a poll. And even then, some are going to argue, well, that's not necessarily the sense <laughs> of the faithful because some of these people are in mortal sin and blah 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 blah. Okay, well, one of the ways that we can identify it is um, agreements among theologians, agreements among the bishops. You know, especially or at the very least, implicit agreements, right? Um, if not explicit ones. So yeah, I think that the the sense of the faithful and the role of it plays a factor here, most certainly. Okay. I think about also, uh, <clears throat> even though we can't know the specifics about who God is going to put where in the economy of salvation, that is known only to him. As, as Catholics, one of the attractive things that I've always found about, the, I guess, the Christian religion in general, even amongst Protestants, is that there are things we can know for certain about God and the nature of God. And, and one of those things is that God can never do anything that's, that isn't the ultimate good. God is the, uh, he, he doesn't just do things that are good. He is the good. He is the, he is the essence of everything that is good. So uh, things like, I, I believe it was Augustine or maybe uh, Athanasius who said, God cannot be deceived, nor can he be deceived. But that, see, that's a very different ver- version of God than, say, that the Muslims have. Who are you to tell God if he can tell a lie or not? He is sovereign. He has total sovereign power. So if God wants to lie, he can lie. The Christians would say, no, we can be certain in God's justice, his truth, and his mercy. So when we look at an instance like something that would force God to do something that was fundamentally unjust, we can with some certainty say that, uh, so if he does have to exclude them from the beatific vision because of uh, the the theological presence of uh, original sin, wherever he's going to stick them, it's not going to be unjust. God is not going to do something that is unjust. And we can know that with certainty. Um, And and that I've always, it's always been a very attractive thing for me about our religion is that we have that certainty about some things about God. A lot of people bring this issue up of, well, would it be just to mm. not admit an infant into heaven simply because they're born with original sin? Well, when it comes to justice, again, the, that kind of assumes that God owes people heaven. Right. Um, justice is to give a person what is due to them. Is heaven due to anybody? No. No. Okay, well, we can't speak about justice then in relation to to heaven and demanding justice and expecting heaven as an outcome. Yeah. 
but that's part of the problem is when, when we when we have that reaction and think oh that's unjust of god not to give this infant heaven if he were to do that it's actually not unjust because to be just would be uh to speak in terms of what is owed and heaven is not owed well and, and we like, can maybe speak about what is fitting yeah maybe we can speak along those terms Definitely can't speak in terms of what's just. And that's why I think the church has always said, one of, one of the things that baptism does is it configures our souls to Christ in a certain way that is necessary for you to even be in heaven. Heaven, again, the idea in, in the ancient Israelite religion, which we would argue we are the true continuation of, is that heaven is for heavenly people. Heavenly beings go to heaven and people live on the earth and if to the degree there's an afterlife, it'll probably be just like a nicer version of earth or something like that. And that's always, that's had developments throughout the, the, the centuries in Juda Judaism. But um, there is an understanding even in the, in the Catholic church that if you're going to go to heaven, you have to, your soul is going to have to be configured to Christ in a special way that it wasn't before. So this is going to leave an indelible mark on your soul that is going to change you in, in a very real way. Um, and yeah, you're right. Heaven is not something you're owed just because you did something good. Uh, you know, maybe maybe you don't get punished because you because you lived a good life. But the idea that you go to heaven, you know, the first century, I think a lot of first century Jews would be quite aghast at something like that. You know, um, and 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 in, indeed, that's the great thing about our Lord is he he makes us adoptive sons of God and 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 thus able to accomplish something like that. But don't take it for granted. It's a, it's an extraordinary thing, for sure. Um, yeah, mo most certainly. This has been. So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I just uh, I know we're going to be wrapping up here soon, but I, I just wanted to uh, speak on. Okay, so I read an article, a critique of your your book, and I thought it was by a guy from all intents and purposes is good faith individual, and you know overall I thought the article was, you know. It, wasn't bad in any way, I, I, but I know at the end of the article, he makes one of his complaints with the book was that he feels like you don't defend uh, against the the idea that modernism and modernists may come in and take what you've said in this book and say, oh, well, see, God can save everybody through extraordinary means, which if God chooses to do that, so be it. But, you know, you mentioned in your book that the, the church has taught that we only know salvation through through baptism, right? That doesn't, mm. as you mentioned earlier, God is not bound by the sacraments. So <clears throat> I read that and I say, you know, we, we do have to be careful as best we can to defend against people taking what we teach and what we say and twisting it. But at the same time, sometimes I feel like you just got to speak the truth. And if they take what you said and twist it and pervert it. Well, that's on them, right? So <clears throat> would you, uh, it, it, so I, I guess what I'm getting at, it, I, I think your book overall, I, I, I don't, I don't have any complaints about it. And overall, I think that it, it puts the message out there pretty clearly. And your conclusion at the end uh, actually uh, helped me with some of my, because, you know, it, it is an emotional topic. And emotionally, I want to say, Babies are going to be in the beatific vision. Infants, you know, through no fault of their own, not being baptized, they're going to be in the beatific vision. But at the same time, I want to assent to what the church teaches. And I think, I think your, your, your book makes a good conclusion that, you know, 
these these infants, yes, if you die with the original sin, you 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 are not granted the beatific vision. But at the same time, that doesn't exclude God's uh, uh, granting. You know the the necessary means of salvation for them to enter into the beatific vision. So the article I thought was good. I, I didn't particularly like the the conclusion of it that you should have protected against people twisting because sometimes you just gotta. You put the truth out there, and what people do with it is up to them. Um, yeah, I, I read the article, and you know, aside from some of the um, problems that it had with the concept of the magisterium, and in particular errors that were made in it about the theological notes, putting right. that aside, um, I, I, you know, respect the person who wrote it, and we're, we're friends. But I thought that that was an unfair criticism uh, as far as I modernism. I, I anticipate that some people would twist those things. But number one, I don't think that it's um, I don't think that it's expected that I should anticipate what every single person out right. there could somehow um, do to distort my words and twist my words. Um, there's a million people out there from m many other perspectives, even aside from modernism, that would distort things. So right. I don't think it's fair for me to engage and respond to every one of those. Moreover, consider the context of the book. The context of the book is to give parents hope and comfort. Why would I immediately start to talk about the errors of modernism, right. <laughs> the problems with modernists and how they twist all the... It's entirely irrelevant to my readers. My readers right. don't care about modernism as much as they care, where's my baby? Is my baby in hell? They don't care about this other stuff. Right. So I thought it was an incredibly uh, unfair criticism um, and I'm, I'm not sure really why it was even necessary to make. I actually don't think the modernists would touch this because the modernists, in order to say that, not legitimately. in order to jump yeah, on your bandwagon, they're going to have to, to say, well, see, God can save people through extraordinary means whenever he wants. That's to admit that the ordinary means of salvation is exclusively baptism. We're also talking about the existence of of. of Afterlife theological realities. Modernists don't like that. Um, the, the heaven, the, the heaven that we're all going to get into is the Marxist-Leninist, you socialist workers' paradise. That if you just let me get have all the power, I promise I'll build and I won't throw you into a labor camp. Wink, wink. Um, yeah, yeah. That that's typically what the modernists are into. The modernists don't think right. about things like who goes to heaven or hell. They don't even believe those things right. exist. So it it, it just it kind of reminds me of like. It would be like if I were to critique the Second Council of Nicaea for condoning the veneration of icons. It'd be like saying, well, you guys, you know, you should have been a little bit more careful there because there's going to be some pagans out there <laughs> that are going to now start worshiping icons. And you should right. have been really careful with the way you formulated it. it. It just, yeah, there's a million people out there that could distort things and it's not necessary to the people that I'm addressing. So. Yeah, I just I just wanted to bring that that up because <clears throat> again I've, I've I've read this author many times. You know I don't really have any issues with him at all that I think off the top of my head. But I but I didn't want to bring that up for anybody <clears throat> because if you do a search for your book on the internet, that's one of the first thing that comes up. So if, so if any of our listeners do search for your book and they come across this, I just wanted to bring up. I didn't yeah. basically you put it more concise than what I did. I, I thought it was an unfair assessment there at the end. On, on and, and again, that's a friend of mine who who wrote that, and and, and we're both brothers brothers in Christ. But I 
I call him out on all kinds of things theologically. So. <laughs> yeah. I think I think if Jesus if Jesus can talk about eating flesh and drinking blood to first century Jews, who there you go. You know, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. Jesus shouldn't have done it. I mean, <laughs> I know everybody gets mad at the Jews who murmur amongst themselves, saying this is a hard saying. But I got to tell you, if you're if you're not saying that, you're not listening closely because yeah. it's intended yeah. to. He could have phrased that in a million different ways. He could have said, "Don't right. worry, it's going to be under he, the guise he, he of bread." Provocatively, yeah. he goes there. He goes right for the provocativeness because he's yeah. getting your attention. And and I I like that that story is included in there and the people murmuring amongst themselves because if. If you knew anything about first century Jews, you don't ever eat human flesh and you don't ever mm. drink blood. Deuteronomy is full of like 16 different admonitions about drinking blood. So, um, you know, if he can make that assertion and and say that if you, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Mm. So it's not a small, you know, it'd be nice if you did this. Um, and so we have to be willing to go there too. Our, our job in the Catholic Church is just to tell the truth as it was revealed to us and let the chips fall where they may. And you know, yeah, and, and it's important again to just kind of keep in mind who your readers and and you know the, who your audience is and, and and focus on them and don't go down a million different tangents and a million different distinctions that are unnecessary. I, I even notice, I mean, I, I'm known for making nuances and distinctions in theology, but I'll still get some person online who comes and says, but you didn't say this. I, I know, but there's a million <laughs> other qualifications that I could make to account for a million other concerns. But if I'm going to make a million qualifications for every assertion I make, this is going to be a long show. <laughs> You're still on episode one. <laughs> yeah, I, I know where they're coming time. from. I, I get the point because we do we do have some unscrupulous uh, you know people in the church who capitalize on uh, ambiguous terms and and then use that to to manipulate people and things like that. And it's happened a lot in the last 50 years. So I get why they're sensitive to that, mm -hmm. but you sometimes mm -hmm. have to uh, dial it back a little bit and, and realize that not right. everybody is out to uh, mislead and, and offend. And right. we're just, we're and, just telling and you, you know, as a show host yourself, that it's, it's incredibly hard to address every qualification oh, yeah. and account for every concern. I mean, it's, it's very hard to do that when you're doing a show, especially when you're doing multiple shows a day. It's just impossible. To do well, and, 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 yeah, critic. and if you listen, if anybody listens to our show, sometimes I kind of, that's kind of my thought. Why sometimes I, I'll sidetrack myself because I'll start saying something I'm like, and I'll be thinking in my head, well, this didn't, you know, but you've got A, B, and C, and then I'll get sidetracked, and I'll be like, oh, wait, I need to get back on the topic. So as a yeah. show host, as we go in this show, that's one thing personally that I need to work on is not worrying about so many qualifications all the time, yeah. just the necessary ones. But like I, the rabbit trails, yeah. I, yeah. Do, I do love the fact that people are interested enough in this topic to get passionate about it at all. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, you know, 50 years ago, one of the dreams, I think one of the positive, really positive things about the Second Vatican Council is they wanted a church in which lay people were excited about the liturgy, uh, interested in, in it, even, you know, they didn't all have to be theological and experts and have degrees from the Gregorian. I was uh, in a parish recently where we go to church and two high school aged kids are having a discussion about the 1955 Holy Week reforms. The council mm -hmm. fathers would have loved that 
And it didn't matter that they knew what they were talking about or they weren't experts and they came to some maybe not great, uh, correct conclusions about that. that. That's less important to the idea that the liturgy, the church, the church's teaching, this is not just for the bishops and the priests and then we just sit back and are told how things are going to be and we don't ask any questions. You just sort of sit there and go that. That is not what this religion is about. You are a part of the church. It's not just the bishops and the priests. So I like I love the fact that people, even if they don't get it right all the time, are passionate about this enough to to raise the objection and have that discussion. I, I love that. So Yeah, and, and I do appreciate the Second Vatican Council here for emphasizing the role, the laity. It, it did that very well. Big time. Big time. I, I actually, even though we're we're quote unquote traditionalist, traditional Latin mass guys. Uh, at least I, for myself, have come to the conclusion that Sacrosanctum Concilium is one of the greatest liturgical documents in the history of the church. Didn't always feel that way because mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. some misunderstandings about it. But more right. recent readings have led me to believe that what the council fathers wanted was a liturgical atmosphere of the church that lay people were interested, passionate about it. And it was a place where we would rediscover old things. You find that terminology all through Sacrosanctum Concilium. So um, I, I don't, now understanding that, I don't see what the big objection amongst people who like mm-hmm. the Latin Mass is the Sacrosanctum Concilium. And I think Vatican II's day has not yet come. That's going to be one of these mm-hmm. things where 50 years down the road, some brilliant theologian who's going to be a great saint will dust off a book in an old seminary shelf, and it'll be called Sacrosanctum Concilium. You know, what the heck is this? And he'll read it, and he'll be like, this is the greatest liturgical document in the history of the church. Why are not... Why are we not teaching this? So uh, people talk about can Vatican II be, uh, you know, reformed or can can be healed or whatever. And I always think Vatican II's day has not yet come. Just sit tight. Well, and and I know Michael had a, a Father Blake Britton on his show before. Um, I actually, that's a good good episode if anybody um, hasn't checked it out. But I read his book and a, and a few other books. And it's all due to this show because, like I said in the beginning, we're not professional. I'm sure I've said wrong things and I'll say wrong things, but it's all about the growth, right? So I know that this show has definitely made me appreciate the Second Vatican Council more than I had previously because you know what? You actually read the documents and don't listen to what people like me or Mark or whoever say about what it says. You have a different understanding of it. So, um, <clears throat> reading your book brought me to a, a deeper understanding of baptism. Yeah, and you know, I, of course, I always believed it's it's necessary and it's important or whatever. But you don't think about what life would be like without it. What, what would what would our salvation? What would the economy of salvation be like without baptism? I mean, mm. you just don't think about things like that until the until a tragedy happens like this. And I'm I'm thankful to God that you shared this this not just the story with us, but your research and and the process that you came to and 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 all of this wonderful information, uh, because it deepened my appreciation uh, for the sacramental theology of baptism that it that wasn't there before. So I'm very appreciative of that. Yeah. And I hope it helps people. Right now, I'm in the process of updating. Uh, some parts to it so I don't have it available on Amazon. So if anybody wants to read it, just email me reasonandtheology at gmail.com and I'll just send you a copy of what I have on PDF. And we'll link link that address in the description as well. Yeah. It it won't be the finished product, but it'll it'll definitely get the information to you to give the, hopefully to give you hope. 
um, while I'm in that process of still updating it. I just got a million things going on, and so so it's slow, a slow process. Yeah, and 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 you alluded to it several times throughout this show. I know we just touched it, the concept of limbo on the surface. Mm. There's much more to it than what than what we discussed. So. Um, is there any resources or any links, anybody that might want to look into it further that you would recommend? Um, yeah, on reason and, and theology. So if you go to YouTube, reason and theology, um, I, I did several shows on this topic, um, that also address the, the history of it as well, if you're interested in that. Um, so maybe just go to reason and theology and type in limbo. Or just type in Michael Lofton Limbo, and in several videos will come up. Okay, Michael, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your day to come here and talk with us about this very important, much more important than I, I may have originally thought. I may have thought, mm-hmm. well, that's kind of an interesting topic. I don't really care that much about it, but okay, why not? And then, <laughs> not until I started digging into it, I said, no, this is actually this has profound theological implications, and mm-hmm. it 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 can help people grow in the faith, even people who are not going through such an unspeakable tragedy, but especially to those who are. And you, you brought this point up a lot today where you talked about hope. And I, I stress this so much. Ours is not a religion of, of, of denouncing people who don't hold the right dogmas. It is important to stand up for the dogmas. Don't get me wrong. That's not unimportant, but fundamentally our religion is about hope. And the things that we hope in are are huge. Um, they are they are incredible uh, realities that we proclaim. The resurrection of the dead. You're going to come back one day in this body. It's going to look better, hopefully. <laughs> but you know, this isn't the end. And we, you know, when you talk about things like what's heaven going to be like, am I? I'm not going to see my baby in heaven. It, we 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 cannot know what heaven's going to be like if we're lucky enough to make it. So I think it's kind of pointless to talk about what that experience is going to be like and whether or not that'll be good enough for you. (laughs) Trust me, if you go to heaven, you will not be like, well, this is okay, but that's not, that's not how it works. Um, So thank you for coming on for sure. Yeah. And I just want to take a second to thank Michael as well. Um, You know, I know we're just a tiny little podcast, but I appreciate you. Appreciate you coming on. It's been an honor. And I did I did kind of want to say something to you completely off topic here. So <clears throat> I was um I finished one of your episodes and then another one just played right after it. And it was about the Philokalia, right? Yeah. And I and I listened to it and I was fascinated by it. Don't understand it completely still, right? Yeah. But many in any time now I find myself in any type of discussion where people are talking over my head. I just bring up the Philokalia and hope nobody knows about it and calls me out. But at least I'm able to <laughs> level the playing field. You know, they're like, what's that? And I'm like, instead of getting into it, I'm like, you should look into it. It's a conversation starter, right? <laughs> exactly. I remember the first time I heard the term hypostatic union. I couldn't wait to use yeah. it. I couldn't wait to I said, man, that's a cool word. Hasn't come, <laughs> hasn't happened yet, but I'm I'm really itching for it. Um, so are are and uh, I don't call you Doctor Lofton yet, correct? Okay, no, no, well, no. <laughs> even after it's Doctor Lofton, it'll just be Mike. No, no, come on, man, you've earned it. Um, if uh, hopefully you'll come back and visit with us again, maybe maybe on yeah, a topic of Eastern uh, Catholic spirituality, which we are incredibly interested in. Yeah. 
Um, we'd love to have you back. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And thank Thanks. you again for sharing such a personal story that I know that that's not always easy, yeah. but I felt like it was incredibly important. And I think you're going uh, <clears> to, <throat> I think you're going to bring us, you know, if it helps one soul come to Jesus Christ, it's worth it. Mm. So mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, I hope you all come back and visit us again next week. Uh, we haven't quite cut, come up with a topic yet, but stay tuned because it's going to be good. And um, we know that you uh, we uh, just take good care of yourselves and take good care of each other and keep us in your prayers and have a good Lent. God bless everybody. Take care. God bless everyone. <laughs>